and welcome to another episode of Stories from Sydney. The podcast that motivates us to learn more about the history of Sydney than we ever would have had cause to otherwise. I'm Jed. And I'm Alistair. And last episode, Jed, I was motivated to learn a lot about the Theosophical Society and their many lavish buildings throughout Sydney. And uh, yeah, told a long and convoluted story about their waiting for a world teacher who ended up disavowing the role. At the end of that episode, you gave me a cryptic and exciting clue about what was in store for this episode. I believe it was something about a a boat leaving from a very famous harbour and disappearing somewhere in the middle of the Pacific. Is it something along those lines? That is more or less exactly right. (laughs) The clue was that continuing on from your Wobblies episode, Mm. this episode will be a story about capitalists and their ongoing subjugation of the working class. Mm, but also <laughs> boats. It's not that bit. <laughs> yeah. And also boats. It's a story that sets sail from a very, very important harbour and then disappears into the void somewhere in the Pacific. Right. So working class politics and boats. But maybe not boats. Maybe that's I'm just really. A... <laughs> it's not a metaphor. It's a literal boat. <laughs> and I'm hoping that you can piece those two together to come out with something. Oh, really? Okay. Uh <laughs> I still don't. I feel like I feel like I'm missing some key here, like this famous port, but you don't name the port. Must have something going on. <laughs> it disappears. I don't know. I got nothing. You got nothing. All right. Well, before we get stuck into it, I'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which we record our podcast, which in my case is the Darawal people, and in my case it's the Bidjigal people of the Eora Nation. And also the traditional custodians of the land upon which this week's history takes place, which is the Awabakal people. But this is a story of globalization and a story of resource extraction. And because these two things uh, independently and together have caused a significant amount of dislocation between people across the world and their cultural lands, I would also like to extend the acknowledgement more broadly to the world's indigenous people who have suffered ongoing adverse impacts. All right, so we've got some resource extraction as well, have we? We do, which I feel like should help you hone in on where I'm talking about. Oh, gosh, Jed. (laughs) Such high expectations. (laughs) Somewhere in the Pacific where they're extracting resources. Is that what you're saying? It is. So I'll just have to launch into it because you haven't given me what I wanted from you. Sorry. Uh, we are going to be talking about the history of the coal trade at the port of Newcastle. Uh, it was a hometown reference. You're always guessing Newcastle. Every story I deliver, you're <laughs> guessing Newcastle. I'm like, he'll just guess Newcastle. It'll be perfect. Yeah. For some reason, the, the very important harbour, obviously, just to me. it is a very important coal harbour as well. Yeah. <laughs> but also the largest export port in the world i believe and uh through the 19th century it was the largest export port in the southern hemisphere yeah okay yeah and actually the coal coal extraction on the in the central coast and uh, newcastle area briefly came into our shark arm story when the intentional sinking of a boat was somewhat ruined by a coal uh, ship coming past heading towards a white what's it called catherine hill bay Coming from Catherine Hill Bay, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Well, well, it was going one way or the other. Yeah. Anyhow. Yeah. So I'm going to take okay. us way before that. I'm going to take us back right to the beginning, uh, as as you might call it, 
uh, to the history of coal in Newcastle before the Europeans arrived. Oh, okay. Great. So for the Awabakal people, coal was obviously a source of energy for warmth and cooking, mm-hmm. but it was also a part of their dreaming. Okay. Fascinating. I don't know anything about this. I've got a quote here from John Maynard, and he's an expert in Indigenous language, and he tells us that the Awabakal are noted as being the only Aboriginal group who incorporated dreaming stories of coal. Mm-hmm. There's a story which says there was a great hole and fire erupted from this hole and a great darkness descended over the land. The whole sky went into darkness and there was incredible fear amongst the Aboriginal population. The elders in the community advised that they had to cover up the darkness that had spread from this hole. They buried the darkness under the land and that's where it lay. And the darkness, of course, is the coal. Mm-hmm. So the interviewer then asked him what he what the Awabakal thought would happen if the coal wasn't covered. Mm. And he replied, the fires would come back and the darkness would descend upon the country again. We'd be covered in a darkness. Mm, wow. There you go. Prescient uh, dreamtime stories. Mm. And interestingly enough, the hole that that story refers to is actually um, a coal seam that exploded at some point um, in history. And... It is located at Redhead and in what is now a um, sort of you know, closed coal mine. And it's actually under my old soccer field. Oh, there you go. Which so you're I did not know until I researched this story. That sometime within kind of uh, Aboriginal oral history, there actually was some kind of uh, geological event of, of, of a coal seam exploding. The, that we think is what is remembered in this story. Yeah, exactly. Fascinating. Yeah, and that actually that um, coal seam exploded in, more recently in 1898 and 15 men were killed there, um, which was the biggest mining disaster in Newcastle. Oh, well, I knew nothing about that. Mm. But now it's, now it's underneath the soccer field. They closed the mine in the 60s and, yeah, it's a soccer field. Seems like a dangerous soccer field. Well, Newcastle's covered in old mines. So if it's not a soccer field, it's a housing estate or whatever else. Right. But this one explodes. <laughs> this one has been known to explode. I'm guessing that they've taken all the coal out now and it's safe. Right. Cleared it from its dangerous coal. So to I've jumped around a bit chronologically. We've gone from an, an indeterminate uh, time frame pre-1788 to yeah. 1898. But we're going to go back now to the early years of the colony when coal from Newcastle was actually the new colony of New South Wales' first ever export to ah, an international market. Right. Closely followed by red cedar. Yeah, yes, yes. <laughs> well, I think coal was exported before they even realized they'd found red cedar yet. Mm-hmm. You can tell how just how early it was being exported because it was sent to Bengal, Bengal mm. in exchange for cattle for food. Oh, wow, okay. So it's right back to the first years of the colony when they're all starving. Right, before they cleared so much land that they could have way more cows than they had humans. Yeah, yes. Start exporting those cows, which we now do. <laughs> yeah, yes. And the coal. Still the coal. <laughs> still, still exporting the coal, but now also cows. Yeah, and um, as you'd well know, Newcastle was obviously a um, convict town. I hesitate to use the word town. Convict settlement Yeah. Um, for its early years. And it was like a prison for the the worst convicts who were sort of sent there as a punishment um, to mine the coal that was exported. Mm-hmm. And it actually remained a military base until 1823 
uh, when Governor Brisbane, who was sort of doing some reforming of the Macquarie era predilection for a very sort of government-centric and military-centric society and started um, giving out freehold land grants up to Hunter, which we actually did touch on in an earlier episode, you may recall. Uh, yes. Uh, is it? The Great North yes, Road. Yes, yep. Yep. Wow, we've but, had a lot. And also Louisa Collins was from, grew up on a... Um, oh, she did. Yeah, yeah farm right. on the Upper Hunter. I feel like the, lots of this has come into it. But yeah, prior to 1820, it was just a convict settlement. And after that point, it became a... Um, I guess, a normal town. And uh, one of my old schools in Newcastle claims the title as Australia's oldest school, uh, public school, being founded in 1816. Oh, wow. That is an old school. Mm. To be fair, it had changed name and changed location. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, So that one was at least claiming uh, that it was founded still in an era when the entire settlement was a government-run military penal settlement. A school for the children of bureaucrats. And all, yeah, and all soldiers, but not convicts. I don't think Doubt so. Doubt the convicts yeah. were invited. Doubtful. <laughs> Doubtful. So as the town developed through the 19th century, it became the Southern Hemisphere's most important coal port, um, but most of its coal went to Sydney and other Australian cities. Mm-hmm. So our story is not so much about what's happening in Newcastle. It's about what's happening in the Pacific. Right. We've got a boat that needs to disappear from this most important of harbours. A lot of boats that need to disappear. (laughs) Okay. Not just one. So the coal trade from Newcastle peaked, uh, export trade peaked in the late 19th century. And between... 1876 and 1896, some 50 ships laden with coal from the port of Newcastle and bound for the west coasts of North and South America mm. went completely missing in the Pacific. Okay, so it's a, a spate of missing ships. And the estimate is that there was over a thousand merchant seamen on those ships who were never seen or heard from again. Wow. Yeah, I feel like you'd start to get some pretty vicious rumors going about what's happening to all these ships. Well, you would, except it was such a lucrative trade that people kind of weren't asking the questions. So there's a really specific uh, global economic exchange going on here that made Newcastle coal such a desirable substance. This is great, Jed. Because, yeah, I I love this kind of story. It's not something I would have ever thought about. Uh, Coal from Newcastle being shipped to the west coast of the Americas in the 1870s. But tell me why that was happening. Yeah, because prior to this point, it was Welsh coal was the dominant source of coal. Mm. And it was going to the, you know, around the world to sort of various colonial possessions that didn't have any. Okay. And around this time as well, we've got the changeover um, into steamships. So prior to that, it was all sailing ships. Then we've Mm -hmm. got a period of, I want to say maybe around 50 years, where both steamships and sailing ships were prevalent Mm -hmm. until the sailing ships pretty much phased out. Yeah. Yep. They had like the last clippers and then they just gave up on sail. Yeah. So it was still expensive to um, carry things by steam, Mm -hmm. uh, but they did have a higher capacity. So a lot of cargo was being moved by sailing ships. Now, the reason this coal trade worked was because New South Wales was involved in this weird three-legged trade route for ships coming from Britain. Uh, Okay. 
I've heard a little bit about this, maybe. Uh Uh-huh. So their primary business, the most lucrative leg, was taking grain from the West Coast of America. I'm just going to say America, but it does refer to North and South America, Mm -hmm. to Britain. And also taking, you know, needed cargoes, um, lots of iron working and, you know, various instruments of industry from Britain to Australia, Mm -hmm. which left this sort of third, less profitable leg. Okay. And rather than dead running, which is transporting empty, they could load up with coal and take that across. Okay. This is 18. So this is post gold rush, um, kind of California, at least. So there's. But before that, there wasn't a great deal on the West Coast of, a, of the United States, at least. Exactly. This didn't kick off until the 1870s. Yeah. And they, they at this point, they have like the, I don't know if they've quite got it, but the, the Transcontinental Railroad's just about to, or has just happened at least. So they're going to need coal for those trains and things like that. They're going to need a bit of coal over there. Yeah, eventually that'll come into the story. But at this okay. point, it's I, I guess it's not there or it's certainly not at the capacity where it can effectively move coal from the east to west because the cheapest thing to do is to get this Australian coal. Yeah, yeah. So there was no demand in Australia for wheat or flour from North America um, or guano and nitrate from South America, which were their primary two exports, which is why we have this sort of circular motion of of the vessels. Yeah, okay, that... That uh, nitrate guano stuff is fascinating as well. I, I've heard a little bit about the history of that. I think is it in Chile or something like that? Yeah. It's, well, yeah. yeah. That's yeah. That was the sort of the main thing they were picking up in Chile to take to Europe, mm-hmm. um, and wheat, for, wheat and flour from uh, North America. Mm-hmm. So, because the sailing ships are now having to compete against steamers for the first time, they're engaging in like the owners are getting the ships to engage in like quite high risk sailing practices where they're deliberately going um, into the roaring 40s, which is around the 40 degree latitude quite far south to go as quickly as they can across the Pacific. And they'd even go down into something I hadn't heard of, which is called the Furious 50s. Oh gosh, you don't go to the (laughs) Furious 50s. (laughs) But uh, the the article I read matter-of-factly informed me that huge iceberg fields were a risk. Oh God. The roaring 40s is terrifying enough. (laughs) Don't go any further than that. I've, yeah, I have heard about this. So, yeah, especially once you're competing with steamships, the only way to make the um, sailing ships viable is to really kind of push the envelope by sailing in the yeah the roaring forties down aggressively. This, yeah. yeah, and then they'd get to the south uh, south end of South America and yeah. take this current that runs up the west coast. Okay, um, but that current up the west coast of America could be so strong that a ship could easily end up drifting a thousand miles past its destination before it could oh, safely gosh. call it port. All right. Sounds like a treacherous and terrifying journey. <laughs> yeah. But the reason it was worthwhile was because it was just so profitable. Mm-hmm. I've got some, I've got some stats here. Um, try not to ask me too many questions about them, please. <laughs> so a typical 3,500 ton sailing ship could leave Britain with say, 10,000 cases of whiskey or mm. hundreds of tons of cast iron pipes and machinery yeah. worth 4,000. So they could make 4,000 pounds doing that. Mm-hmm. They could load coal at Newcastle for America mm-hmm. and make 3,000 pounds doing that. Okay. And then they could take grain from California or nitrate from Chile to Britain and make 3,500 pounds doing that. Okay. 
So and actually, so, the most money was made from us Australians buying pipes and whiskey. Yeah. Okay. Well, we were in desperate need, I guess. We we needed things. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> we need things. So the result from that was a fully utilized round-the-world trip that could get a ship owner about £10,500. Yeah. And that's on a ship that's purchase price brand new was about £15,000. So you only need it to make the trip twice and it's more than paid for itself. I mean, you do have to pay for your merchant seamen. Ah, but, uh, yes. <laughs> Apparently, if, if 50 ships could go missing and 1,000 people in no one was really batting an eyelid. Yeah, no, they, they, and they, merchant seamen still do have a terrible deal under most labor regulations. And I can't imagine it was any better in the 19th century. Yeah. This meant that New South Wales was able to produce cheaper coal than Old South Wales. Ah, finally. Uh-huh. Actually, maybe we finally have an explanation for the name <laughs> yeah. of New South Wales. Yeah. It's never made any sense. But in terms of its coal significance, it makes Yeah, were well, you giving sense. the name as too much credit since they didn't know about the coal yet? <laughs> no, was, was it? Because it was, was it the um, Cook expedition that named it New South Wales? Yeah. And then it was the, um, the lost preservation guys who discovered the coal. Right. So it was already New South Wales. Mm-hmm. It was a fortuitous, mm-hmm. after-the-fact discovery, after-the-naming, yeah. at least, discovery. Yeah, okay, yeah. interesting. And so that competitive advantage meant that they could get the coal to California heaps cheaper, and I think that at the time, California was the main market, mm-hmm. or at least a big enough market. So in 1895, a shipment of 3,000 tonnes of coal bought at 52.5 pence a tonne in Australia plus 75 pence per ton freight could sell in Peru for four pounds a ton, which is a 300% profit. I'll do the maths for you. Yeah, thank you. There was a lot of numbers there, but that sounds like a tidy profit. Mm -hmm. So the point of all that being is that this sort of strange um, interrelationship of various totally bizarre uh, global economic elements came to be that Newcastle coal had an outrageous competitive advantage over anywhere else in the world. Before this whole West Coast trade kicked off, up until about the 1860s, Newcastle was already exporting a few thousand tonnes a year of coal, as they Mm -hmm. had, and it was going to places um, like Manila, India, Hong Kong, and Java. Right. So this is a reorientation of its exports. Yeah. So in the 1860s, there was, you know, perhaps no coal from Newcastle going to San Francisco, in 1876, there were 89,000 tonnes of New South Wales coal sent just to San Francisco. Sounds like a lot. And in, 19, in 1891, it peaked at 320,000 tonnes. Huh. Yeah, that's fascinating. So I, I like to think that this great American story of the transcontinental railway and connecting the country up in these, you know, steam trains going across that actually they were all powered by Newcastle coal, probably. And it doesn't quite quite fit with their independent narrative. No, they were dependent on our <laughs> ex-convict town. Yeah, yes. Um, and so thanks to all this West Coast trade, Newcastle was the busiest port in Australia. In 1875... Newcastle exported 724,000 tonnes of coal, which was up 250% on the previous decade. And all New- all the mines in Newcastle had increased production and the collieries had purchased more rolling stock to get it to port. So they're all just trying to get their coal to the port, but the port wasn't 
able that, to cope with it. Because that's it's a, the bottleneck. Yeah, that's the bottleneck. So a lot of the mines weren't even running at full capacity. Right. Um, and as well as all this international trade, in 1876, there was on average two daily steamers and five sailing vessels loading at the quay and 29 ships waiting offshore, um, which is interesting to me because to this day, there's all those coal ships waiting offshore of Newcastle. Yeah. Um, and some of that coal was being transferred to Sydney by train, I presume, to then be uh, just to it. avoid the delay. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, but you were saying that there was only 15 ships a month, but then it seemed like you just said there were a lot more ships? 15 sailing ships heading just to the West Coast a month. Okay. But we have, yeah, average like of seven of loading a day. Cool. The biggest okay. market by far was domestic to Sydney okay. mainly, but also to other Australian cities at the time. All right, checks out. As well as probably some of those Asian ports I mentioned. Right, but we're more focused on this. We're focused on these entrepreneurial ships. Yeah. This is just the background. We're painting a picture. Yeah, learning a lot about Newcastle. Learning a lot about coal loading. So You're about to. So in 1878, Newcastle introduced its first hydraulic crane, which was able to load a 2,000-ton ship in two days. But the port remain, retained its notoriety as an inefficient port. Uh, and that was in large part due to ongoing industrial disputes. Have you heard of a job called a trimmer? No, but I I want to know more about it. So it was their job, once the coal was dumped inside the hull of the ship, to move it around and form it into like spread it evenly across right. through the hull. And this was important because you had to minimize the risk of coal moving um, at sea because what could happen is if the coal shifted mid-journey on like a particularly aggressive swell or whatever, yeah. it could cause the ship to be stuck uh, on its side because the coal was just on the side of the and ship pinning over. it down. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to say the friction caused a spark and then the whole thing blew up. That could also happen and we'll get to that. Okay. Um, so since 1876, trimming at Newcastle could only be performed by contractors to the railways commissioner, but not by contractors to the ship owners. Okay. And the Railways Commissioner set poor wages so trimmers would, like, refuse to work at night, for example, because the wages were crap. Okay. And so that also contributed to the inefficiency of the port. But these are also people that, like, everyone's life depends on trimmers doing a good job. Anyone on the ships. Life. Yeah, yep. Um, and so they filed a petition with the New South Wales Parliament, over a 1,000 trimmers, complaining that they wanted to negotiate directly with captains. Um, because their only choice was between the sum set by the approved contractor or no work at all. And mm -hmm. it's, it's interesting because it's, it's a testament to the fact that the uh, market was so strong at the time that the workers basically don't want these industrial protections. They just want the ability to negotiate and they think that's right. to their best advantage. Right. Well, it does seem like there's just huge demand for their services. Yeah, and they kind of got ripped off because through the 1880s, it was such a boom for coal that everyone was making heaps of money, but, but not them. Right. It also sounds like very difficult, work, dirty, dusty, hazardous work. Yeah, I imagine it was awful. <laughs> Sitting in a hull, having coal poured on top of you and having to rake it out flat. Yes, definitely. Um, so the, the trimmers spent years trying to... Um, they've even formed an unofficial union in 1885 and uh, they, you know, had various industrial actions. But in the end, they were, um, they were ruined by the industrial action of another marginalised group 
when in 1890 the coal miners went on strike, which completely crippled the export trade and all the dock workers. Right, okay. That didn't mark the complete end of the export to west the west coast did it but it started the decline. no i think it was just the end of the trimmers um uh, enjoying right. a position of relative power which they unfortunately completely uh, were unable Lost. to benefit from in any way despite <sighs> being absolutely crucial right poor trimmers a fun aside uh newcastle was known by say by sailors as colopolis that's a good name and was considered to be the best party de- destination for seamen in Australia in the 1890s. Still is, isn't it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think of it as a party destination of sorts. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, so that's a bit of background. Hopefully not too much background, but the scene has been set. I could never get too much background of industrial relations in 19th century Newcastle, Jed. <laughs> Excellent. Just the man to listen to this story then. So that brings us to the next chapter, which is what's the going ships. wrong. The missing ships. Yes. So in 1895, six were burned and six went missing out of 294 departures from Newcastle. So that year it was like 5%. So one reason why New South Wales coal was considered more dangerous than, say, Welsh coal, which obviously had to also mm. get transported internationally all the time, was because whereas Welsh coal is, <laughs> and now we're getting yeah. into some excellent geology, is easily pulverised, New South Wales coal was slippery and liable to shift suddenly in bad weather. Okay. So ships that carried grain in bulk had to make use of shifting boards that would be fitted mm. over the top of the commodity to stop okay. it from moving around at sea. But that wasn't always applied to coal. And for about 20 years, it was an on-again, off-again argument about whether they should use these... Um, Sh- the shifting boards. Right. So the idea of these boards is that you like kind of clamp them down on top of the cargo to stop it from moving. Yeah, they're, they're actually installed. And the argument against them is a classic argument, which is basically that if you put in the, the shifting the shifting boards, you can't fit mm. quite as much coal. I thought that might be the argument. Yeah, and they cost like 10 or 20 pounds to install in right. terms of material and time. So it wasn't, uh, in, in the context of the sort of profits we're talking about, it was eminently doable. But it did cut into profits a little. It cut into the profits. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, once the coal shifted in a heavy sea, the ship was unsailable and then could become right. prone to explosion. Another funny fact is that that industrial agreement I mentioned that the trimmers weren't too happy about stipulated that they were paid by the ton. Right. And if I was paying you by the ton to get coal nice and level in board a ship, would you be inclined to <laughs> do the get best as many tons in there as job? quickly as possible. <laughs> there you go. As long as I don't have any close friends or relatives sailing off with it, then just get it in there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So we've got a couple of different ways that a fire could start on board a coal ship. One of them I just mentioned is that uh, the the coal could shift and um, become more prone to explosion. Mm. But how that would be, how that would actually start was by two different ways. The first was that gas would seep from freshly mined coal Mm. and that would create an explosion. Okay. Kind of pool somewhere and then a spark would set it off. 
Yeah. So that was obviously exacerbated in a port like Newcastle, which was just trying to pump out as much coal as possible because there was supposed to be rules about resting the coal um, at the colliery after it was mined, before it was loaded on the ships. But they were just pulling it out, getting it to the port and chucking it on the ship. So that increased the likelihood of explosion as well. Mm -hmm. The other way was that the coal would be loaded wet and then it would heat up in the hull very, very slowly over time. And about two months after the ship had left port, it would self-combust and then obviously ignite the coal around it. Right. Seems like there's a problem. They're not seasoning their coal. Yeah. Yes, exactly. (laughs) But also Newcastle is like quite humid. So you would have coal that's like really hot and really wet getting loaded into the ships. Yeah. Um, And some data would come out in time that demonstrated that uh, ships that left during periods of high heat and humidity in Newcastle were more likely to disappear mysteriously. Oh, gosh, this is terrifying. Yeah. As you can imagine, the government and capitalists weren't too keen on uh, having the obvious pointed out to them. No, no need to look too much into that. Uh, one captain at out at sea in this period um, went past one of the reefs, uh, I think got swept slightly offshore and went past a reef on the South Pacific. And on that one reef saw five burnt out ship hulls that had run aground. Oh, man. Yeah. So there's just we, there's wreckages of Newcastle coal ships scattered <laughs> along. Strewn across the Pacific, yeah. And the, the sailors knew the trip was dangerous. Mm. Uh, when confronted with burning coal at sea, they basically had two options. Um, one was to close the ship up and try and starve the fire. Of oxygen, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the other was to open the hatch and get in there and try and dig out the coal that had started it. Oh, God, that sounds... dangerous terrifying and not what i'd be up for okay if that's if it's only a small fire at this point you try to get out the offending pieces and i actually have a popular sea shanty from the 19th century that mentions the hazard excellent that i'd like to sing for you i think sea shanties are back in in a big way i'd like to hear it all right They're loading coal aboard the Star alongside Newcastle Quay. And out across Newcastle Bar there spreads the lonely sea. And Jack's fond lass has found another friend to love her. Here he go. Along the road, the lonely road, the road to Kayo. They heaved the log for 50 days and on the 51st the greasy cargo went ablaze and then the hatches burst. Twas man the pumps, all hands to pumps. And curse ye as ye go, a broken ship, a burning ship, bound out to Kayo. That was great, Jed. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, wow, that tells the whole story. Yeah, doesn't it? And uh, in case you weren't aware, like me, Kayo is uh, in Lima. I it's was just about in, to ask that. Okay. Yes, the port in Peru. Immortalized in the sea shanty of Newcastle. song that I obviously made up the rhythm to. <laughs> oh, you did a pretty good job, I thought. <laughs> for a man not known for his sea shanties, you really pulled off a good one there. <laughs> Very polite of you to say. So, despite the risk being well known, certain entities that could have very easily, with a stroke of a pen, solved the problem, chose not to. Mm-hmm. Because uh, for a couple of reasons, but one of them was that the traditional model of ship ownership, which had you know been around through the maybe previous centuries, uh, where a well-known merchant owned the ship 
and, you know, had a stake in his brand name, if you like, yeah. had changed in this period to these sort of diffuse global entities um, that owned the ships where they really had no accountability, no brand name and weren't really interested in resolving the issue. Mm-hmm. Um, focused on the bottom line might sound familiar. Yeah, okay. So, yeah, there's not lots of small business owners who then have to keep up a reputation. Otherwise, they'll lose crew and kind of not be able to gather enough people willing to take their ship off. And now you just have a couple of big corporations that are somewhat faceless and they're the only option. So if you're a sailor, got to go with them. Yeah. And it's also, it was a global issue. So governments of the day kind of felt like they could just not fix it and blame another government. Right. And also it the only real losers here were the poor workers that died. Right. Other profits remained. Because as you said, sure, 5% of these ships are at the worst point uh, sinking. But given the way you were explaining what the profits were like, that's still a wildly profitable endeavor, even if you lose 5% of your ships. Exactly. Um, but And life was, yeah. So life was super dangerous for the seamen at the time. They had some higher pay than land workers. Well, you'd hope so. But- otherwise, you'd have to be a madman <laughs> to do it. <laughs> yeah. And when laws uh, such as the Employers Liability Act 1880 came in, they only applied on land. Mm-hmm. Um, so once the ship... Uh, was classified as lost, all the rights of the seamen ceased, which meant that if your ship was classified as lost and then you were found, you had to pay your own way home and received no compensation nor your lost wages. Oh, that's awful. I was thinking the other way around. If you could just kind of hide away for a few months, get your (laughs) ship classified as lost, then you would be the sole owner of the entire cargo. Nah, nah, you were done for. That's that. More you just being shipwrecked and no one was going to pay to take you home. Yeah. And they were one of the last industries to face imprisonment for disobeying instructions at work. Oh, wow. Gee. Mm. So rough gig for a bit of a better pay. Yeah. So in 1874, the Board of Trade explained why it was no longer holding inquiries into casualties caused by fire on coal-laden vessels. Mm. And they said, the result is invariably the same that the officers of the ship are exonerated, that the court recommends better ventilation, and as the Board of Trade have no reason to believe that the recommendations of the courts have any effect in inducing owners to adopt a better system of ventilation or render underwriters unwilling to insure vessels of this description, the Board of Trade have decided not to order inquiries in such cases in future. Right, okay, so they're basically saying, we know exactly how to solve this problem, and no matter how much we say that people should do it, they're never going to do it, and we don't feel that we're going to enforce it in any way or have the power to do that. So there's no point conducting any more inquiries. We know what the problem is. We're not doing anything about it. Move on. Yep, yep, move on. Uh, so in, but the British were doing something about it. In 1876, they set up a the Royal Commission on Spontaneous Combustion of Coal in Ships. Oh, wow. Yep, and that established seven key points, which was basically the stuff I've run through. Uh, The first was that transporting coal is dangerous. Um, The next was that wet and ventilated coal is more likely to explode, that explosions would occur less if the owners and underwriters regarded these facts, that the temperature of coal should be tested en route, Mm -hmm. and they should be thoughtful all-weather airflow, and that inquiries should take place in the event of an explosion with exporters accounting for the types of coal on each ship, and that the above should happen, there is no additional legislation required. Hmm. 
that was formally outlined by, you know, the structure of a royal commission in 1876, which in our timeline... That's is way before all the these be- ships are sinking there. It's the very beginning <laughs> yeah. of the problem kicking off in New South Wales. Yeah. yeah. So the knowledge was they know undoubtedly all about there. It. Okay. Yeah. So that carried on more or less as I've described until something happened in 1893 and the mystery of the exploding ships was solved once and for all. Oh, all right. Tell me more. Why so solved even more than it already was solved? Yeah, definitively solved. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so what happened was a ship called the King James, which was loaded with 3,500 tons of the finest Wall's End coal. Yeah. It was bound for San Francisco and just offshore up from its destination was discovered on fire. Okay, off San Francisco. Uh-huh. So the crew had fought the blaze for 11 days. Wow. Uh, but on March the 30th of that year, the ship blew up and the men escaped in two boats. Um, only four survived, but for the first time, we have the crew of a lost ship that was carrying Newcastle coal who could testify outside of the colony. Right, and explain what happened to the people of San Francisco. Horrified yes. at the terrible working conditions yes. in Australian boats. <laughs> Yes. So the Californian court was very clear on the disaster. They had this to say. The voyage proceeded safely till the 19th of March, 1893 in fine weather. The master navigated in a seamanlike and proper manner. And when the casualty was inevitable, had done everything in his power to avert it. There was no blame on the master, mates or crew before or after the casualty. The master gave proper direction and was praised for the manner he performed his duty and gave proper directions to extinguish the fire. The crew used the utmost exertions and proper discipline. The ship was well manned and seaworthy when it departed Newcastle, New South Wales. The coals were well and properly stowed. There was no deck cargo and was not overloaded. But the vessel was loaded at a time when it was saturated with rainwater, having rained incessantly at and prior to time of loading. Sounds familiar. In the court's opinion, the spontaneous ignition of the coal was partly due to that fact and partly due to the coal being dumped from a great height into the hold and broken into small particles. (laughs) That hydraulic lift. (laughs) I knew it was bad news. Yeah. So this is what you were saying about uh, South Wales coal being easily pulverized. The way that it breaks is safer, whereas this Newcastle coal, if it's dropped from a great height, the way it shatters is very dangerous. I believe so, yeah. Fascinating. The good old Californians have told us what's what's up. They have. Obviously, this Californian inquiry came back to Australia and the various parties who had been ignoring this issue for 20 years had to respond. Mm. Uh, the Newcastle Marine Board repeated that no local coal had ignited spontaneously. <laughs> um, and the Newcastle Chamber of Commerce, whose member included most of the coal interest, responded that the King James, at the time of loading the Wall's End coal, had about 50 tonnes of Welsh coal at the bottom of the hold. Oh, I always knew it was that. <laughs> <laughs> Perfectly safe Newcastle coal. Yeah. Suspicious so- Welsh coal. The master had intended to exchange this remnant coal before loading in Newcastle, but to save time, he just boarded it over and dumped another 3,459 tonnes of coal on top, which was just the perfect excuse that the Newcastle Chamber of Commerce was looking for. Right. And so they issued a statement saying that the Californian court, being unaware of the Welsh coal, was mistaken. (laughs) 
Right. Doesn't seem like this is ever going to get resolved. No. Well, and the, the Newcastle Chamber of Commerce had a couple of other solutions. They said that they falsely stated that more ships went missing holding other commodities. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they claimed that there needed to be more lighthouses in the South Pacific. <laughs> it's just a lack of lighthouses. And the you've heard mention of the underwriters. So at this point in time, there was, aside from the massive profits that could potentially justify losing a ship, mm. you could also insure your ship right. for 200% of the value of the ship. So if the ship got lost, you won as well. Right, right. Because you, you should get 300% profit, but you can get 200% profit even if you lose the ship. The insurance companies are happy. And you don't have to pay all them. those people that just died. <laughs> right. Okay. Sounds like a wonderful way to make money. It was, but around the same time the King James went missing, the underwriters finally decided they had to do something about it. Okay. So it really did create an international sensation. Prior to the year the King James exploded, 1893, the only risk that an underwriter considered was the running aground on coral reefs when they were calculating their premiums or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. But by 1896, a London underwriter wrote to the New South Wales Insurance Institute and told them that the number of ships from Newcastle for American ports that were lost exceeds the number lost between any other ports. Wow. London insurance rates for first-class vessels as a consequence of losses has increased from 35 shillings to 60 shillings per hundred pounds. Wow, okay. So they've cottoned on to this being literally the most dangerous sea route in the <laughs> yeah. entire world. <laughs> the data's finally come around. Okay. Ships started becoming literally uninsurable with the uh, risk of spontaneous combustion. And because of this, the colonial government finally decided that they had to act. Mm. So it was just when the profits started to not be so guaranteed that we finally got something to happen. Okay, so we've had the King James explode, and that's drawn global attention to the danger of Newcastle coal, which has forced some action in the colony. Now, the colonial government has still stayed silent on the issue, but the Newcastle Chamber of Commerce has decided that they're going to get ahead of the issue by having what they called a friendly inquiry. Mm, Which is going to be a sort of like truth-telling exercise, you know, non-binding, but let's get to the bottom of this kind of uh, foray. Exactly. So, unsurprisingly, um, all the different parties had their representatives there and they all blamed one another. Mm -hmm. In a friendly way, though, I'm sure. In a friendly fashion. (laughs) I mean, all these things were true, but uh, it was natural that everyone was blaming the other one to distract from their particular issue. Um, So, we've got insurance premiums are too low. We've got the trimmers were too poorly paid or perhaps Mm -hmm. lazy. Uh, captains weren't checking their loads properly. The coal was too wet. Mm-hmm. They needed to use shifting boards. There needed to be more government supervisors at the dock. Mm-hmm. And the friendly report, as you would expect, ended with the line, in no case had any vessel sailing from this port carrying Newcastle coal solely been lost through spontaneous combustion. But... There has been a lamentable degree of carelessness in the supervision of the trimming. <laughs> well, no, that's wonderful. That's wonderful double speak, isn't it? 
<laughs> slip that little fragment in there. Carry Newcastle coal. Well, <laughs> that we was Welsh. Categorically tons of deny Welsh at the bottom. everything. <laughs> yeah. This friendly inquiry says that we should perhaps improve our practices. <laughs> yeah, yes. Yeah, and uh, the report made no reference to the English report of 14 <laughs> years earlier or the fact that there was a um, drop in the number of ships that went missing from Wales after that report. Right. Merely a coincidence. A couple of years later, in 1896, a, another fire broke out on board a ship called the Knight with a K of St. Michael. Mm. One day after it left Newcastle, uh, and I think it had to pull into Sydney. So it was very front and centre, this flaming coal ship. Um, and this amount of public attention forced action from the colonial government, who uh, started an inquiry that same year called the Royal Commission into the dangers of which ships carrying coal cargoes are liable. Mm-hmm. And that became known as the Sydney Commission. Right. There's nothing quite like having a burning ship immediately off your coast to convince you, maybe we need to address this. Yeah, yeah. Um, This commission came to many of the same conclusions as the Friendly Commission. Um, But this time they had some more data because it wasn't just a, you know, hand-wringing exercise. Mm. Uh, And they had these three charts that showed ship losses, temperature and rainfall over the past eight years to mm-hmm. show that ships were more likely to go missing during hot, wet periods in Newcastle. Yeah, wow, fascinating. And to think I knew nothing of the dangers of shipping coal in the late 1800s. Yeah, and uh, you'll be also pleased to know that the Sydney Commission established that dropping Newcastle coal from 30 feet high, it's directly into the ship where it would break up into small pieces and form cones that were then liable to ignite. It was a bad idea. It was a bad idea. It also t- it was actually illegal to drop from more than 20 feet, so it was only done at night. Because <laughs> <laughs> that's somehow better. <laughs> yep. So, yeah, and then that's it. The Sydney, the Sydney Commission um, finally set some rules about it. We're finally going to solve the problem, except for one little thing. Ooh, what could that be? In 1899, so we're just three years after the the Sydney Commission, Hmm. the industry completely collapsed. Okay. Because these new efficient steamships, you know, they'd been been making some headway, but they finally completely took over, which ended the reign of uh, dead-running coal on sailing vessels from Newcastle to the West Coast. Right. Okay. So all those ships went to the Alaskan goldfields. Well, probably not all of them, but many of them went off to the Alaskan goldfields where they're in demand. And around the same time, um, the West Coast Transcontinental Railway in America must have... Really um, kicked off. Really kicked Mm -hmm. off because they started getting their coal from the East Coast of the US. Yeah. And yeah, they would have had multiple transcontinental railroads by that time. And yeah, I, I guess a lot more capacity for moving things like coal around the country. Yeah. So... In the end, the industry problem was solved by the industry, I guess. The government certainly did nothing. (laughs) Just waited until more or less it was no longer a massively profitable enterprise. Lives were saved just by the industry no longer existing. Yep, yep. Um, And so for Newcastle, the port, I think, 
continued to be of significance as a coal export port, just not to the West Coast of America. Mm-hmm. Um, but it really kicked into gear in 1915 when BHP, Broken Hill Proprietary, as you may know it, oh, no, uh, no. opened. It still works at Newcastle Port. Okay. Oh, fascinating. Okay, so you can kind of track the history of Newcastle through these different periods of what the coal was used for. Yeah, yeah. And so it was 80 years was BHP was the biggest employer in Newcastle until they closed in the 90s. Yeah, and that, yeah, that's kind of the history that we're more familiar with. But I didn't know that there was this period before steel production in Newcastle when Newcastle was this kind of wild west frontier exporter of dangerous cargoes to the west coast of america (laughs) yeah yeah totally wild um and in newcastle's coal mines so during the period we're talking about they were like they were in what would now be considered newcastle cbd and immediate surrounds Mm -hmm. um and then they sort of fanned out in the back into the 19th century to the what's now the suburbs of newcastle and lake macquarie Mm -hmm. and all those urban and suburban coal mines were closed by the 1960s when bigger mines started opening up the Hunter in places like Curry Curry and Cessnock. And nowadays it's mostly open cut coal mines, even further up the Hunter um, in places like Singleton. Yeah. Yeah. They're the ones I'm familiar with the huge open cut mines, but yeah, the whole town is um, sort of crisscrossed by different coal mines and, um, yeah, it wasn't, it's certainly not part of my memory of growing up there so much because as I said, they were already being converted into soccer fields and the old colliery railways were being turned into bike lanes and such. Mm-hmm. Um, but people who grew up in Newcastle in the sixties, the seventies, the abandoned coal mines were like a big sort of feature of the town, I suppose. Right. Yeah. I'd also heard that underneath all of the suburbs of Newcastle, huge amounts of mining, tunnels and pits and things like that that you're basically standing on top of x mines at all times yeah so in 1989 you may know a very famous earthquake hit newcastle Mm -hmm. and apparently because there were so many old mine cavities it actually protected the town from being damaged more by providing a sort of like cushion for the moving ground (laughs) nice which i thought was interesting it's an earthquake proof city yeah, although one resident of Cooks Hill, uh, when the earthquake hit, had his piano drop through the floor of his house into a shaft below. That's a bit terrifying. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. This has been a great history of Newcastle. Yeah, a bit of Newcastle history and a bit of geology. <laughs> well, a bit of 19th century global economics. What a wonderful mix, Jed. I couldn't think of... Three topics that I'd rather hear threaded together by a man from Newcastle himself. I can only hope the listeners agree. (laughs) I'd say it's probably one of our most niche topics yet, Uh, but it was wonderful. I think I've always found those trade routes interesting through time. Um, This last age of like the kind of tail end of the age of sale when it's running at the same time as the steamships but there are certain routes that are still profitable with sail- sailing boats is very interesting and yeah and, and obviously the industrial history of newcastle i think i've only ever really heard about the miners and the miners strikes and things like that but to think that there was this yeah hugely significant uh, loss of life and dangerous practices with sailors and 
the uh, what are the rakers called the trimmers. The trimmers. Um, that's not something I'd ever heard of. Yeah, a thousand merchant seamen. That's a lot of people. Died. Yeah. yeah. Yep. So, as well as thanking me for my excellent job delivering this extremely esoteric story for you, Alistair, I'd like to thank Russell, who sent this through as a suggestion and instantly won me over. Oh, yeah, I can imagine. By not only proffering a Newcastle-themed topic, but also referring to us as scholars of obscurity. (laughs) That's probably the nicest thing anyone's ever said about me. (laughs) Um, and the source for the article, you probably guessed it was a journal article, judging by the density of it. Right, it's okay. A, uh, I was going to ask, because this is a yeah, very detailed information about a very specific topic. Yep. So it's a two-part article published in a journal called The Great Circle in 2006 and 2007, titled Bound Out for Kaeo, the Pacific Coal Trade 1876 to 1896. Or selling lives. <laughs> That's a great name for an article and a fascinating article. There are some really cool academic articles out there that are actually, yeah, interesting stories. You know, they could almost be popular history, but they also are not. And it's great that we're able to have a podcast where we can read them and uh, explain them to each other. Shine the spotlight on them. Or the lighthouse, as it were. <laughs> the missing lighthouses of the West Coast missing of America. Missing lighthouses of the South Pacific. <laughs> Not going to help you out much if your ship's on fire, but... <laughs> <laughs> oh, you got to love it. you got to love it. Well, I think that wraps up my episode and also season three of Stories from Sydney, History of the Harbour City. Yeah. Putting the harbour back in Harbour City. <laughs> so, yeah, the Harbour City and its surrounding harbour-related... <laughs> harbour towns. <laughs> Excellent, Jed. Well, thank you very much for that. I know we've had very brief conversations about what's to come with our next season. I think we'll be taking a little bit of a break before then, though, and maybe coming back with less ambitious seasons in the future. Yeah, we'll have to wait and see. I don't want to, you know, plan plan at this late stage in the season. I'd rather give myself a break and come back with my eyes glowing at the possibility. <laughs> Kick back and enjoy uh, the fresh air and potentially dangerous humidity and rain of the eastern seaboard exactly well thanks so much for spending this season with us everyone we've very much enjoyed it we hope that the uh, spread of stories we had on offer this season had something for everyone and um, we hope you have a wonderful break and find some other excellent podcasts to listen to when you don't have us And at some indeterminate point in the future, we will no doubt be back for season four of Stories from Sydney. See you then. Wonderful, Jen.